When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, Welcome to Namaste, Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of comedy, self-help and business collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and today's episode is called There's No Such Thing as a Fish Out of Water. One of the things my guest and I talk about today is synchronicity, a term originally coined by Carl Jung that refers to deeply meaningful coincidences which mysteriously occur in your life. When synchronicity happens, you'll have experiences that seem far too significant to be mere day-to-day, serendipitous encounters. For example, the first and last British soldiers to die in World War I are, entirely by coincidence, buried yards apart and facing each other in the same cemetery. And that's not all. A certain Violet Jessup, what a great name, earned the nickname Miss Unsinkable, a bit sexist, when she survived both the Titanic sinking in 1912 and its sister ship, the Britannic, which met the same fate in 1916. And here's quite a sweet one. In 2001, a 10-year-old little girl called Laura Buxton released a red balloon from her front yard with a label saying, please return to Laura Buxton and her details. The balloon finally landed in the yard of another 10-year-old girl, also called Laura Buxton. And that's not it. They met up, not only did they look alike and dress alike, but both the little girls had three-year-old chocolate Labradors, a grey rabbit and a guinea pig. What are the chances? And an even weirder coincidence in my own life is that every single time I tell a joke at home, neither of my kids laughs and often they both leave the room. Dad, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? You've gone full 1980s DJ. I know this is an audio format, but um, that's, yeah, is that to hide lockdown hair? It is uh, lockdown hair. It's crazy at the moment. That's today's guest, Dan Schreiber, writer, comedian, presenter, producer, podcaster, and QI Elf. Dan's life has been a string of coincidences, and as he puts it, being in the wrong place at the right time. I might get different headphones because this is a new microphone, so I just want to make sure. Is that why you've got it centre frame? So I'm like, wow, how much did you spend on that microphone? Yeah, exactly. You'll recognise Dan's transatlantic tones from hit podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish. And Dan also co-wrote the book version of the podcast, The Book of the Year, with his fellow QI elves. Dan, among many other things, also co-created and produced BBC Radio 4's The Museum of Curiosity, alongside the legendary John Lloyd, who's my guest in a later episode of this podcast. Dan and I talk about Spike Milligan, fellow QI elf Andrew Hunter-Murray, Baby Brain, Rudolf Steiner, more Andrew Hunter-Murray, synchronicity and serendipity. 
but I started by asking him about having a baby at the start of lockdown. Yeah, he was born on April 15th, so he's just turned a year old, and he was born on what was in the first lockdown, the peak of the pandemic that they had predicted with the curve. So April 15th was the day that they said was going to be the most horrific day of the pandemic. So we were very nervous heading into hospital that day. We had a planned cesarean, so we knew it was happening that day. And um, it was a terrifying time. Also quite magical to be in a hospital and witness the incredible work that all the nurses and doctors were doing. It was, it you know, you, it was the one time you didn't want to be in hospital. We were in for the right reasons and we got to experience it. Um, and just be, be able to say thank you to them was quite an, a, an emotional thing to do. Did you <laughs> just, bring up a saucepan and a wooden spoon and just beat the pan and say, thank you, NHS? Thank yeah, you, NHS. during the cesarean section, I yeah. was there. Yeah, it, it just added to the atmos. Usually they play songs in the background, but they just allowed there me to There was no need because you brought no your need. steel band along. Yeah, it was like and, stomp. <laughs> so you were there for the birth because I know when we were... T- and by the way, I should say we're recording this in April 2021. So we're talking about a little baby born in April 2020. And I know you were worried you wouldn't be able to actually go into the hospital because of it and it might be just your wife going in on her own which I thought was a extreme length to go to to be a 1950s dad who didn't want to be there at the birth <laughs> but did they did they let you in in the end they did I, it was it was an extraordinarily intense lead up to it because there were quite a few qualifications to me getting in and and being allowed at all to to enter into the hospital so one of the things was obviously i needed to pass the the sort of um temperature test when you were going inside and that was the biggest if i wasn't going to pass that that was me done and you just start playing up in your head of like, does worry give you a temperature? Because I've been worrying so much. Does lack of sleep give you a temperature? Because we've been not sleeping. And we've also got my eldest, Wilf, who was, you know, waking up in the middle of the nights and so on. And so there's all these things. I'm just thinking, does does this lead to a temperature? And, and, and the idea that I would fail my wife and my unborn son if I wasn't able to keep my temperature low, despite, you know, not having covid as well so it's a whole different kind of performance anxiety i've never heard of this one uh being talked about by a man is it um it's a bit like a lie detector test then you know what i've always thought if i had to do one of those um i don't know if you watch the mauritanian but they he did a couple of lie detector tests and obviously was then released without charge very good if you haven't seen it extraordinary but, um, i saw it the extraordinary. other night yeah. yeah really amazing but if you but and obviously the main takeout was not how to pass a lie detector test but I did think, God, imagine under that pressure. So I guess there is, even when you're even when you're in Guantanamo Bay and your life depends on it, and you do a lie detector test, the evidence is there to say it would correctly read you. So I guess you. I just wanted to put your middle class worrying about having your temperature taken in perspective. There is that been a bit of a leveler? Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like <laughs> I'm going to try and throw that back at you at some point <laughs> in the show. Anything sounds <laughs> pathetic when you compare it to a man's incarceration. <laughs> For what was it, 14 years? And seven of them after they'd found that none of the charges could be upheld. So seven of them waiting to get released. So, yeah. But it's, yeah. this isn't normally the, the cheery note upon which I start uh, one of the episodes of Namaste <laughs> Motherfuckers. So we're going to get back on, on chirpy track. Um, how do you describe yourself, Dan? Because I, I was just saying to my kids who I was interviewing this afternoon, and I was like, he's a QI elf. And then my son was like, is it Andrew Hunter Murray? Because he's my favourite. And I said, uh, well, you know, he's friends with him. Uh, but do you describe yourself as a QI elf or 
what, what's your kind of opening gambit at a dinner party? I usually start with close associate of Andrew Hunter Murray. That seems to <laughs> get me a lot of friends quite quickly. Um, I It's changed from years since I've been in the business because I've QILF does come up always. Um, producer for a long time. I was a producer before I did anything else. When I quit producing and became a stand-up, I would say stand-up and then recently podcaster because that's that's been the sort of dominating bit of my career for the last seven years now but it's all it's all in connection really with the day job which was which is being a qi elf um i don't work on the tv show anymore which is where you kind of really are a qi elf but i as part of the podcast and part of day-to-day stuff with fact hunting uh i sort of yeah am bracketed uh as that i'd say podcaster at the moment and we should say for anyone who's been living under a rock, uh, obviously the podcast is no such thing as a fish, which is only one of the most successful podcasts in the world. You've done tons of episodes now, right? Well over 300, is that right? Yeah, we've done 370. We're actually thinking of changing the title to Andrew Hunter Murray's No Such Thing as a Fish <laughs> just to really boost the numbers. It's been <laughs> hidden in the metadata and I feel like that's hurting us. So I wish I never it. mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And is I it... Mean... <laughs> Well, count the references to you having a dig at me with Andrew Hunter Murray and also <laughs> pointing out that you speak yeah. Mandarin. This is your Guantanamo Bay now. <laughs> That's a good, no, let's not make jokes about Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> Cut that mic. So um, in terms of, um, let, let's talk for a moment about no such thing as a fish. So you obviously had already done a lot of episodes of that podcast before lockdown happened and then when the whole world started launching podcasts you had to maintain the quality of a good one but remotely so how because it's all about the kind of chemistry between the four of you right that must have been a bit of a challenge with four different locations four different wi-fi connections how was that when you first transferred from real to virtual yeah it was it was very scary because we are a weekly podcast and the fear of will this still work in this scenario? And we we knew that we could, you know, I I think it was quite obvious actually when Zooms were happening and there were lots of people in and we were working out that we could still chat in the way that we wanted to. The worrying was on a technical side, there's lots of things like lag when you're trying to mix the four different things together because we were we were recording separately and all these all these kind of boring technical things were actually more the worry than the chemistry because we were 300 episodes in. We know each other inside out. We we know when to not talk over each other. You can see when someone's on the brink of a gag or someone wants to interject. And we've been surprisingly good at, um, you know, we, we came in prepped basically for a moment like the pandemic in terms of the chemistry that we've built up. So actually that was fine. Wi-Fi connection was pretty terrible. Anna was staying when lockdown happened in an Airbnb that she got locked into, basically. She had to stay there and... Um, oh, she had farmyard kind of Wi-Fi, you know. There was moments where like, oh, we have to pause because the tractor is passing by. And when the tractor <laughs> passes by, for some reason, the internet stops and stuff like that. But um, on the whole, it's kind of, it's been okay. But it was a nightmare to begin with, definitely. And then we kept doing it and it was so rewarding getting all these messages from people who were using it as a sort of, a help for anxiety and for loneliness and it felt like their four buddies that they've been listening to for all these years were still chatting in the pub and they felt like they were at the pub with them these were the kind of messages we were getting so anytime we found it hard it was always a reminder that 
this the podcast has weirdly taken on a bigger purpose for for some of the listeners and it's worth going through the pains to make sure that that doesn't stop obviously we want to keep making it but the, we, you know you you have your own down moments in particularly the pandemic where you think oh god what am i doing and uh and they kind of boost you so yeah, yeah it's funny how all of our worlds have got so small right and if you think about the things you've done and we'll you know we'll talk about a few more of them because you've had a nothing if not an interesting life so far but the natural thing for people who are curious, right, and about the world is that the world keeps getting bigger and you have these serendipitous conversations and hear weird things you wouldn't plan to hear. And I guess in a way, that's what QI and no such thing as a fish do. They give you those weird facts that you might hear if a you know train broke down and you got chatting to the person sitting opposite you and you'd find out that they were a neuroscientist and they'd tell you something weird and you'd go home and go, I never thought I'd learn that. And I think that's one of the lovely things about listening to no such thing as a fish during the lockdown has been that feeling that you know all of you but also you just hear this weird shit that where would you be picking up random stuff when all your random connections in the world have been shut down yes yeah exactly it's a consistent yeah it was consistent randomness for people i, I like that as yeah a, consistent that could be on your eulogy consistent randomness yeah. and is it um so how do you said that you don't work on the tv show anymore on qi so how do people what is the a day in the life of a qi elf well, it's it used to be very simple. There was a TV show and you researched for the TV show and that kind of was the life. Occasionally there was a book. But in the last few years, particularly when we set up an office in Covent Garden, I wasn't working with QI at that point. I was peripherally working with them because I'd, I'd come up with a radio show idea with John Lloyd and my buddy Rich Turner, which was running six episodes per year called Museum of Curiosity and I was the producer with Rich and we were also you know everything that that entails writing scripts and directing the research and booking the guests and editing and it was a big it was a big big job and so I was always connected with QI and then I joined back in after about I think about a year after they had this office and I got put in charge of coming up with ideas effectively the development guy in there and I started noticing how John Lloyd and Sarah Lloyd, who run the company, are just extraordinary at finding people who are very dynamic and have different skills that are transferable within the company and giving them the space to do that. So we all started coming up with different ideas and there's no one has a consistent job at QI. So there is no average day for a, for a QI person. You might be working on some big new app idea or a tv show idea the the app bit makes us sound wanky it, it's it's not it's not a hipstery kind of thing it's you know we we work in media and we just try and find as many ways as possible to to spread the interesting facts that we found and the podcast was one of those and i specifically remember looking around the office going we need to be recording these chats because they're funny and they're interesting and we should be bottling this because most of it doesn't make it to the TV show. And it was just as simple as that. And then that was my project, uh, along with James Harkin. You, he and I would really sit until 1 a.m. in the morning just trying to crack this thing. And and then, you know, coming up with book ideas and coming up. It, the, it's, it's a lot of reading, but to not one specific thing. There's no linear day at QI. I'm guessing that you obviously don't as a QI elf or anyone who's working, whether it's on QI The Show or any other aspect of what you guys do at QI Towers. I'm guessing you don't just go into Google and go, oh, here's an interesting fact about a lab rat. So how do you find the weird stuff that isn't Googleable? 
Well, sometimes you do do that as a starting point. It's always good to have something to kick you off and then dig deeper into and, and try and work out what that is. So like, for example, um, an upcoming fact that I'm going to be doing on the podcast, I haven't actually looked into this enough to be giving great detail about it, but I read an article that in America, there are over 300 women whose names are spelled A, B, C, D, E, and that's their first name. So, and it's how pronounced many? differently. How many women? Over 370. Oh my God. And there's been a boom in the last few years of more than being named that and it's pronounced something like abacidi or absidy I, I can't remember the exact pronunciation but it is spelled as a b c d e and so okay so there's a kind of fact that actually when i started looking around was sitting there on the internet and that's that's fine so you start looking into it a bit more and i was looking at who are these 370 women that have been named this and 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 let's say girls because obviously it's it's uh, babies that are being named them in recent years so you look into that and found out that in 1990, there were five people in America called ABCDE. I'm just going to say it like that for ease. Mm -hmm. And according to the reports, all five of them were born in Hawaii. And interestingly, Hawaii, the, the modern alphabet of Hawaii, does not contain the letters B, C, or D. So you've got three letters within this five-letter name that don't exist within their language. Now, obviously, they could be from anywhere in the world. You know, they're not necessarily Hawaiian. But that's just a nice little nugget. You know, the five people in America in 1990 that were named A, B, C, D, E were born in a place that doesn't recognize B, C, or D as letters of their alphabet. It's quite cool. See, this already sounds pretty much QI fully fledged to me. And is that so you'd find something that piqued your interest? And when you talk about, because obviously this podcast is among other things about work and business. So if somebody is thinking, I'd love to be a QI elf or I'd love to get into that stuff, what what leads you to it? Because you left, you moved over to the UK when you were quite young, right? You grew up in Hong Kong and then Australia, is that right? Yeah, I was born in Hong Kong. I lived there till I was 13 and then moved over to Sydney for my high school years. But I went to a really bizarre school. It was a Rudolf Steiner school, which... Oh, I know a... about Rudolf Steiner. My uncle was a Rudolf Steiner teacher. Ah, okay, right. So it's a school that doesn't really use the normal systems that are in place for a school to teach kids it's it's very rogue it does teach uh, a lot of good stuff it's quite controversial online anytime i mention rudolf steiner mm. there's a huge number of people that come quickly to tell me that it's evil and i should be ashamed of mentioning people it. think it's a cult i think they think it's a cult yeah they think it was based on very dodgy kind of eugenic ideas of this rudolf steiner guy I always respond by saying that's yeah okay I you know sure I like what am I what am I going to do I was sent to a school and I had a really great time and it really informed the way that I moved forward in life you know I I don't want to cancel my school because I had an extraordinary education there I had a Harry Potter like existence I had teachers that drove wooden cars and wore curtains and hessian to school we had meditation at the beginning of every school day we sang songs with our head teacher who survived cancer not by doing chemo but meditated with monks in the outback of australia like we had a bizarre upbringing there and it was a school that encouraged me to be artistic as a as a front-running priority to the things that i was doing if i was doing science work 
uh, and I was handing in my homework, my teachers would give me as good a mark if I decided to have a silly take on it, as long as as long as the facts were still in there. It was very much QI stuff, to be honest. Uh, yeah. At school, I was I was already being built for my kind of QI career. So it was like original thinking over, I mean, I guess, well, just one thing to say that <laughs> the bit you said at the start of describing your education, I mean, there's a fair bit there, Dan, for people to have a good pop at, you know, wooden cars and Hessian. And yeah. if you put stuff out there, people are going to go. But in, in in once we get over any, um, any sort of route one gags about it, it sounds like it was promoting you being an original thinker rather than having to fit a mold of what school should be. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. It it really took you as an individual. This didn't work for, you know, 50% of the kids there who wanted a proper education and found this really annoying, but it did work for me. Um, yeah, they and you got inspired by your teachers. Most people say they have one teacher at school that, that really inspired you. The Steiner school that I went to had about five or six that you would meet in the corridors. And even if you didn't have them as a teacher, you would dream of having them. And that would be enough, just the little stolen conversations. Is it right that you have a key teacher throughout your Rudolf Steiner experience? So you'll have a person who's your main point of contact rather than switching teachers every year? Yes. Is, is that the way it was? Because I, I, I wonder, I was talking to, um, I think, Arthur Smith. And one of the things that struck me about Arthur reading his book and seeing what he and his brothers have done in the world was this idea of unconditional parental love. And I wonder then if, obviously, when you have a teacher at school, they're a sort of faux parent figure for the time you're in the school. And I wonder if having that, it's almost replicating a sort of unconditional bond with somebody. So rather than saying, well, this is transitional, you have this amazing person for a year, it's giving you some continuity. And do you th in your case, do you think that helped you have the roots and branches to have the confidence to strike out and try stuff in the world? I feel like um, probably my confidence levels were given to me by growing up in a place like Hong Kong. I think they were they were brought in there, an international transient childhood where people were from all over the planet. Um, you walked into rooms where you had to understand, you know, I, I would go to my friend Zamir's house for dinner and we would have an amazing evening of cultural things from India as part of the dinner. And then I'd go to Daniel Chan's house and we would do a Chinese evening where his grandparents didn't speak any English. And so I had to speak Mandarin the whole time. I had friends like Max, who was half Japanese, half German. None of us were placed and we were all living in Hong Kong, which isn't a place. It just wasn't a place. We all knew we were leaving at some point. And what it meant was there was no room that you would walk into where you didn't feel like you were a part of. It just felt very natural to be in any scenario as a result of the little ring that you had. So I feel like that confidence, weirdly, that you could go anywhere and, and be a part of that room was installed in me in Hong Kong. The Steiner thing helped me, helped guide me into what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, I would say, using that Hong Kong confidence. And the belonging. So going back to that childhood, because when we look at thinking about what is kind of well-being, how do we find our feet in the world? How does everyone have a voice in the world? So in a way, nobody belonged in Hong Kong because you were all passing through, right? So it was a world of people who didn't quite belong there. And then did that, it sounds as if that enabled you to work out who you actually were. So you had to have your voice because everybody around you was very different from you. So there wasn't an option to fit in with a bunch of people who all seemed the same. Is that what your childhood was like? Yeah, I th I've, well, everyone was so different. It's really hard. I've, I've never properly thought about my childhood in Hong Kong in those kind of terms. What I do know is that when I went to Australia, 
I suddenly realized I didn't have a home anywhere. It still is the case. Mm. I, no one will accept me as a local. You know, it's something about my accent uh, that's unplaceable. It's something about my lack of time in each country that means that I've, you know, I'm not English yet. I've lived in England since 2003. But if I try and say like, oh yeah, I, you know, who's your football team? Oh, I don't, I love football, but I actually don't have a team. Oh, you'd have one if you were British. You would have been brought up with one. Oh, okay, cool. Well, then I'm an Aussie. Okay, um, you know, name this Midnight Oil song. Ah, oh, you know what? Midnight Oil wasn't really a big band for me at that time. Oh, okay, you're not an Aussie. Like, there are just so many things, cultural things that I'm missing that means that people don't go, yes, you are that person. So I'm a bit of a nowhere person as a result. And but you don't seem like an imposter, like you don't seem to, and again, tell me if you do or you don't, because someone described um, imposter syndrome to me as comparing your your insides with other people's outsides. So we all sort of figure that no one else is suffering with any of these feelings. Mm. But to me, you seem pretty confident, like you've got your feet on the ground, you know who you are. And does that, so that feeling of not quite belonging, there's something quite vulnerable about that, about being in one country and one place after another and never completely being able to camouflage, even if you wanted to. But does that, does what is that feeling of confidence to you then? Is, is it fairly real and strong or are there other things going on? No, it is. Yeah, I, th I think it is real and strong like i my my family are very much aussies right they they've lived in australia since there and that's home to me and that's all that matters australia is home because that's where they are my kids are going to have british accents which is so weird to me uh, i've got you know these two little boys and they're already saying daddy and that's that's weird to me i want them to have my crazy accent and so even within my own family, I feel like I'm going to be an outsider because my wife has her British accent. You know, even if we move to Australia, they would have an Aussie accent. There's, it's so hard to be able to work out how my kids are going to sound like me. So even, so I've, I've, I have no issue with where I'm placed because I know that even within my own family, I don't have that placement. I'm just this, this ephemeral kind of weird accented guy. Um, and I, this is this is turning like into a weird therapy session where I haven't worked out what I think about this, so I'm just saying it out loud. <laughs> and you're loud. not paying so me enough for me it's... to answer in an intelligent way. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean is, it's kind of this. These are all new thoughts, so I don't even know if I believe they're just coming out of my mouth. Um, That's a big old disclaimer. We're going to put them out anyway, Dan. Even if you're like, oh, I don't know what I said. She tricked me. I'm the one with concussion. You should be the one uh, set telling the truth. But is, it sounds as if so. The Rudolf Steiner School, in a way, would have been the perfect breeding ground when you think about creativity because one of the things people will uh, some people will know you from and this really struck me when you did it so right at the start of lockdown you had this little baby the whole world had gone to shit and everybody was kind of struggling to just get through hour to hour none of us really knew was this properly going to go full contagion or was it going to go away again and then you with a tiny baby decided to start doing a daily show us your shit insta live show so you came up with a show called show us your shit and yeah. started doing it at a point when a lot of people would have been like i wonder if i can manage to clean my teeth today that feels like quite a big ask so how do you do that how, how does someone come up with something like that under those circumstances i came i came up with that in a bit of a panic actually because i when my first son wilf was born we i had this idea and then developed it with the with the fish gang for a book which was based on the year which was called the book of the year 
and it was distilling all the most interesting stuff that happened in it and came up with the book idea in January, which is when it turns out I had conceived my son with my wife and we delivered the book in September, which is when he was born. And so this book's gestation was the exact same time period as my son's gestation. And the the guys were really lovely when the book came out. They allowed for me to dedicate the book to my son, um, to our partners and to my son. And, and it was really important to me because it's something that he's going to have for the rest of the life. This is the year that happened, the year that you were born in a book that's dedicated to you. And I was, I was really proud of being able to do that for him. And when Ted was arriving and the world shut down, you know, we had been planning possibly to do another book of the year. We did three in total, but in 2020, we decided not to. And for the better, because of what happened. Namaste, motherfuckers. You had this lovely gift, a sort of a life legacy for your firstborn and then your secondborn comes into the world. He's coming into the world and I thought I've done nothing to sort of, I don't know why I felt the need to do it, but sort of creatively mark something for him to sort of say, and this one's for you. Um, It just suddenly felt an important thing to do. And with the stress of what was going on in the lead up to Fenella giving birth, I I was losing the plot a bit with with my just generally my mind of what was going on and was this going to be okay I needed somewhere to put that energy and it was actually a week before he was born that I suddenly woke up and I had this thought and I messaged my QI buddy Alex Bell and I said what are you doing in 15 minutes if I do an Instagram live thing would you be free to come on and he said yeah and I said okay this is what I'm calling it show us your shit go around the house grab the most interesting stuff that you have and we're going to show people on camera and I did the first one and it was great. And I thought, oh, well, I'll ask another friend. And they did it the next night. And then I asked another friend, they did it the next night. And I plowed on with it for until until Ted was born. I certainly felt when my two kids were little, I wasn't a comic at the time. So I wasn't sort of having to really think what my voice was or who I was in the world in the way you do when you're a comedian. And I felt like I sort of de-selfed a bit. I became a parent and I absolutely loved being a parent of a baby but I felt that any sort of creative energy or sense of what I might say to the world was slightly diminished. And I was really struck by the fact that you still had a sense of who you were and what you wanted to say as distinct from being a dad of a tiny baby. Yeah, that is interesting. I definitely wasn't like that with Will for the first time around because we we had to do an audio book for the book of the year not long after he was born. And then a few weeks or like two months later, we had to go on tour and you know, I'd, I'd do the show and come back home and then go off and do another bit of the UK and come back home. And on that, I was all over the shop. I totally was not on top of anything that I was saying. And equally, I feel like for the last three years, I've definitely had uh, the term is baby brain. I definitely have had that. My my brain is all over the shop, except for when I was doing these Instagram lives where I, for some reason, everything just kicked into gear and I was able to have these great chats with people and the format of the show is very simple it's show and tell right it's you know show me another thing but I was trying to make sure that the people that what they were showing was stuff that it was stuff they found interesting that most people would find boring the reality is if it's told to you by someone who's interesting they're going to make it sing and so every item that would come up would sort of be like an adrenaline boost because oh my god I'm looking at a piece of pottery that was taken from Saddam Hussein's palace like you know suddenly you're like did someone actually bring you that was that one of the things yeah Jenny Colgan 
Jenny really? Colgan, the author, has that. Um, she It was collected for her by a journalist who was there at the time who picked it up and went, oh, I'll, I'll give that for Jenny. You know, she'll she'll. Well, like he just this. picked it up in the gift shop, put a bit of dust on it. It was like, here you go. That's what this is. <laughs> exactly. Is, um, who have you had? You've had some really brilliant guests for it. Who, what's, been, uh, what's been your favourite guest or thing that someone has brought on to show us your shit? I had an amazing episode with Jane Milligan, who is Spike Milligan's daughter. Mm-hmm. And she went through her attic and she found some pretty extraordinary things that I don't think have been seen anywhere. So, for example, she had slippers that Spike used to wear around the house, which were, you know, Mr. Men, the Roger Hargreaves? Yeah. They were Mr. Funny. So Spike Milligan used to walk around his house wearing Mr. Funny on his feet, which it's just really heartwarming. It's worth the podcast interview just to have heard that one fact. I love that. Well, check this out. As well as that, he also had, she kept a bottle of, I believe it was whiskey, or gin, I think it was whiskey, that was very old. It was Napoleonic, and it was the bottle that Spike opened the night that Peter Sellers died and drank all of, I think all of, on that night. And they kept the bottle as a symbolic thing. But um, yeah, the bottle that Spike down That's the amazing. night that Peter Sellers died. Yeah, and she, she had all these extraordinary items. And what was really nice about it was it was almost like an alternative biography show because... We were getting the story of Spike Milligan as a father, as a as a radio pioneer, comedy pioneer, as a TV show, sketch show pioneer, through all these these very small items that wouldn't necessarily be shown in a museum. But, you know, that bottle represented Peter Seller and Spike Milligan's um, relationship. Their, their love as basically brothers. And, you know, Spike was in the hospital when he was dying, and that's what he went home to drink. It's just such a an amazing artifact and and then she had random wonderful things that kind of told you more about spike's life like she said i've got this painting here which i've had my whole life my dad gave it to me when i was a kid and it was this multicolored painting that had rhubarb 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 written three times on it and she just always had it and didn't know who had done it or where it had come from and so one day later i think she was an adult at this point she said to spike by the way, you know my rhubarb, rhubarb, rhubarb. Who who painted that? Where did you get that from? Because I've taken it. It's the one thing I've taken to every single house that I've gone to throughout my my life. And he said, oh, that, that was painted by the Bee Gees when they were living in my basement in the house that I had in London, I think it was. What? And they couldn't afford rent. And so they painted this for me as a sort of gesture to say thank you. And yeah, so that's, you know, so the top one, you know, middle of Barry and Robin and and Morris. So, you know, it was just all these random items. And most people's shows, by the way, had, it didn't need to be as connected to someone famous like Mm -hmm. Spike Milligan. There were just extraordinary items that really made you either want to own the thing or want to lead a bit more of an exciting life it was just so energizing to do this show night after i think i did outside of that week's break i think i did 40 nights in a row of the show and and it got sort of bigger and bigger and yeah you get some good following and i have tuned into a few my dad has tuned into a few and it's nearly a year ago it celebrated its first anniversary didn't it show us your shits it did i burnt out definitely on it about seven months in and i didn't do it oh actually almost about six months in and it sort of disappeared for six months and i've only just started it again because we recently did a big marathon show for comic relief uh, yeah i saw that that was a hell of an undertaking yeah but weirdly everybody what that was anyone who didn't see it or know what happened 
Yeah, so what we did was I, again, getting quite restless and we were talking about the cancellations of tours for No Such Thing as a Fish and the continued sort of half rebookings that were then being, you know, that every comic act and music act and theatre act has gone through where you haven't told the public, but in the background, you've been rescheduling that tour you meant to do and then it's crumbled again because of new laws uh, to do with the pandemic. So a lot of us in the background have been living this limbo thing that's been going on and we were getting a bit upset that there was no progression outside of just doing the weekly podcast and I woke up one morning and we discussed a few years ago what if we do something for a comic relief never materialized because I guess we were too busy or couldn't think of the right idea and I suddenly thought okay now that we've got zoom because this has opened up a whole new thing to us about the way that we make our show and we've had a few guests on while we've been in the pandemic so we know it works with guests let's do a long marathon where we try and raise money. We do it live. And usually on our podcast, we do four headline facts where we chat about each fact for about 20 minutes. Well, it's 35 years of comic relief. Why don't we do 35 facts with 35 guests and each of them talk for 35 minutes? That was the basic idea. And we pitched it to comic relief and they loved it. And we had two weeks to put it together. It was such a late in the day idea. And we had to book 35 slots. And this is where... The show us your shit booking system in my years as Museum of Curiosity meant I didn't for a second doubt that we could do it. It was you just just get on it and let's book these slots. And it was a magical experience. We we had to do effectively a 20 hour long podcast. That's how long it lasted for. We opened with Michael Palin as our guest. And then it was like Sandy Toxvig, Stephen Fry, Harry Shearer. Um, you know, over in America, we had Mary Roach, one of our heroes, uh, pop science writers, and Stephen J. Dubner from Freakonomics, and then Tim Minchin, and um, uh, Hannah Gadsby, and Shappy Corsandi, and Maggie Adderon Pocock. Wow, and- the sort of people that if they were all on a plane together, you would very much hope the plane did not go down. Yeah, I mean, it was it was talking to heroes. I mean, that's, you yeah. know, this is a thing that, you know, you are definitely probably going to experience more and more as you do this podcast is you're going to start reaching out to people that you don't necessarily have a connection to, but you've admired and you get to talk to your hero in, and you get to talk to them on this mutual ground where you're discussing the format of your show with us, with Fish. It's Michael Palin, come on. We don't want to ask you about your career. We want to ask you, what do you want to talk about that you find interesting? What was well, his find- thing? What did he want to talk about? His thing was that one of the first people to try and attempt to get to the top of Everest was this eccentric explorer whose plan was to crash his plane halfway up the mountain into the side of the mountain and then climb the rest of the way up. Just to miss base camp. Yeah, just to sort of get a head start. Um, But obviously the idea of crashing deliberately your plane uh, straight on into a mountain is is not a great plan. And what became of him? Well, actually, he he wasn't allowed to take his plane into the right areas after he'd landed, I think, in Nepal or somewhere. So he had to walk the end of it and he didn't he didn't make it. It wasn't I, I don't think he I can't remember if he died or not on the trip. I don't think he did. But then what you end up talking about is Mount Everest, about eccentric ex- explorers. And that's totally Michael Palin's field. And yeah. it's just wonderful because when you interject with an interesting fact, it's not as if you're trying to take away from them talking about themselves or from them trying to promote something. It's like we're all here just to talk about Everest. How cool is yeah. that? And then, all right, now it's time for um, 
who who's coming on uh karen gibson karen gibson was and is the founder and conductor of the kingdom choir which was the choir that sang the gospel choir that sang at harry and megan's wedding oh yes and yes. what an experience that look was how well that worked out <laughs> well the marriage is going great uh, <laughs> they're stronger than ever <laughs> but you know she's talking about what's it like to conduct a choir to two billion people watching and what's um what's happened to her life since and and it that was a phenomenal chat about gospel we were speaking specifically about i'm so annoyed i can't remember her name but she was a famous gospel singer in america who martin luther king used to call up whenever he was feeling down so that she could sing down the phone to him so that he could become happier really? again. Yeah, well, look she... up who this was and try and put it in the show notes. Well, she is, yeah, I'm I'm furious that I can't remember her name. She's an amazing person and she's also pivotal for a very important moment, which was when Martin Luther King was doing his great I Have a Dream speech, he wasn't going to go into the I Have a Dream moment. That was a thing that I think he'd mentioned one or twi once or twice on various different speeches, but he had a very different speech written down there. And as he was delivering the speech... You can hear in the video, I think Karen said you can hear this. I haven't actually watched it back yet. You hear someone yell, tell them about the dream, Martin. And that's her. That's this gospel singer. And wow. that's when he puts down the paper and he says, I have a dream and tells that that pivotal moment in in history. It's because she yelled that out. She made that moment happen. So suddenly here's a character that a lot of people will know of but none of us knew of and yeah you're having this chat having just spoken to michael palin about everest you're then chatting to karen gibson about this extraordinary woman who who changed the world the stories people haven't heard before and that is the thing that's that kind of going full circle to where we started out hearing those stories i mean that's the bit i love about when the world's open and you can travel and you and your world gets bigger as you get older you have a choice right to keep deciding to try new things and keep taking risks and that's the bit we've sort of missed out on and anything that can provide that stuff for us and sort of fuel us with that is definitely um well well worth more than worth the uh, the price of entry the metaphorical price what would you pick as your namaste motherfucking life moment? So I've, I've had a big think about this because like you with various different career changes, all of them took a namaste motherfucking moment to put me on a different course from A, deciding at school not to do a traditional course of even finishing school. I finished school, but without any um, credentials. I couldn't go to university and that was a conscious choice that I made because I thought I don't want to go to university I just want to get on with it then it was deciding to stay in the UK then it was having a chance meeting with John Lloyd which changed everything for me um, but then it was having someone tell me that I had to do stand-up by booking me a slot and making me change my life again there were all these moments that have happened and consistently happen um, that have meant if you follow your nose, you can have this new life, this whole new region. It's like it's like Doctor Who. You've suddenly mm -hmm. you're the same person, but you feel like you've regenerated into this whole new character. Mm -hmm. And I've had five or six of those moments. Um, one one that definitely was a big one that I think about a lot was I remember being about sixteen years old, and I was sitting on a beach with my uncle Dean, and I was talking about a comedian. And I'd been I'd been living this life up until then about telling people that I was going to be a comedian. I was going to be a comedian and I was going to do stand up and I was going to be like Seinfeld and I was going to make movies like the Marx Brothers. And I was going to just be 
a big comedian. That was the that was the narrative that I was giving everyone in my life. And oh, that's weird. You're you know you're 14, you're 15, you're 16. I was saying it for all these years. Um, and and so I remember being quite judgmental one day with my uncle sitting on a beach, and my uncle was over from Singapore, and so it's not as if I saw him a lot. He was he was someone very close to me in my life, but also a bit distant as a result of geography and lack of internet back then. And we were sitting on the beach, and I said, um, oh, that comedian that he mentioned, he mentioned someone to me, that comedian's a bit crap. I'm, I'm not really into that. I, I don't think he's a very good comedian. And my uncle went, yeah, but he's he's doing it. He's way better than you because he's doing it. And all you do is talk about it. Where's your stand-up, Joe? And it was this weird moment where I realized, oh my God, you actually have to do the thing in order to say that that's what you're going to be in life. It's no good just talking about it. Otherwise, you spend the rest of your life talking about it. It was a real thunderbolt moment as a 16-year-old. It also made me furious with my uncle it was a fuck you i'm gonna i'm gonna show you that i can do this as a career not in a revengeful way but in a in a it just it, it lit a fire basically it lit a fire that sort of said you're wasting your time just talking about it what's your favorite joke dan my favorite joke is knock knock who's there europe europe who no europe who <laughs> now the reason that's my favorite joke that's only it's become your son's joke at the moment is it it's the first joke he's ever learned and he we tell it to everyone everyone we see on a zoom any phone call we have if we're out in the park we go up and i say wilfie tell them your joke or he says dad i'm going to tell the joke and that's the joke and he's learned how to do knock he's three years old he's learned knock knock wait for them to say who's there europe europe like he's got the the technicalities of it down and i don't know what my first joke was that i ever learned or told and do you want to I'm hear gonna... my kids first one which yes, was please, a, yeah. another it's obviously a knock knock you're gonna to have to do the call and response uh-huh. uh, knock knock who's there interrupting cow interrupting cow who Moo. <laughs> they're the best jokes not not jokes <laughs> so you going... can pass that one obviously and then you learn comic timing as well which is a brilliant thing to and that's probably the last time I ever taught my kids anything that they thought remotely resembled a joke um the last question Dan that I ask everybody who guests on the podcast is if there was one bit of life advice you could give to anyone listening what would it be there's always been life advice which has been right place at the right time I was in the right place at the right time and that's great that can that can lead to an amazing life but it can also lead to a fairly mapped out life a life that you've predicted for yourself and you've tried to engineer so you know i was in the right place which means i i i went to the place that i wanted to be in and i happened to be there at the right time and that could be speaking to someone who gets you a job or meeting the the people who are going to help you in life generally my thing is be in the wrong place at the right time and that's when life gets spicy and interesting and that means if you're looking through a magazine talking about you know when the world opens up again about interesting nights that are happening and you go god that's something i would never go to like what's this a a night of someone talking about a weird subject i'm not interested go to that because then you're going to bump into people you would never have bumped into but you will find common ground and that will lead you into far more interesting projects than you ever would have got into that's that's completely what my career has been about about putting myself in the wrong place but being there at the right time and finding the narrative changing completely 
to the life that would have been the life that I that I was leading. I I was a very young kid working at the BBC. I was um, given my first gig as a QI elf when I was 19 years old. And I decided when I was 20 years old to leave this job. I left when I'd just done one and a half, well, one, sorry, two series of QI. And I didn't know what I was gonna do with my life. But I said, that's too predictable that I'm just going to be doing this one thing. It's come full circle because I eventually came back to QI. But I ended up moving to London where I applied for a BBC job and I started working in the quiz unit, which is something I never, ever wanted to do. But as a result of that, I met my friend Rich Turner, who was also a comedy guy who never wanted to be there. And we came up with this idea of Museum of Curiosity, which then we became the producers of, which then led me to meeting a kid who said you should meet an agent who then said you should be a stand-up. Just everything was in the wrong place. Now, I know it's within the same bubble, but what I mean is make eccentric and lateral uh, decisions about what you're going to do because it's far more interesting and 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 I could have stayed as a BBC guy in the quiz unit and maybe now be running the department as the internal quiz guy but instead I went on to be a producer and then a stand up and and who knows what and a podcaster now curated randomness it sounds like so the random acts happen and then you decide where you kind of go with them but you've got to allow for the randomness and be curious enough to let those weird things happen and make unlikely decisions that might not make a lot of sense yeah like i think there's a lot of thing to be said for the idea of synchronicity and and looking Mm. out for things that obviously you know if you talk to anyone who's uh, skeptical and i sit i sit in in terms of synchronicity i sit firmly on the line because i Mm -hmm. believe that you can change your life by looking at the synchronicities in your life by Mm -hmm. Uh, by just going, ah, oh, isn't that weird? That feels like there's something bigger, a bigger mm-hmm. purpose going on here. Or, you know, and and a lot of people say, well, it's just coincidences that happened. Yeah, absolutely, totally. But if I believe that there's something interesting in it, then that helps you to to make decisions to guide your life differently. Like a really tiny thing. This is so odd, Callie, about uh, today's chat, but and in terms of life-changing moments. But when... I took a week off work and in my week off work, I thought, oh, I want a bit of a mini adventure. And I found a fact and I thought, I'm just going to follow up on this fact. And that f- following up on it led me to go down to Brighton and have a bit of a, a sort of fun journalistic kind of adventure. So the thing was that I found this fact about a story that Alistair Crowley supposedly turned a poet called Victor Newberg into a mm-hmm. camel. I thought, what? Turned into, into a camel. And so I looked up if this was if there was any truth to this and there's a book that's coming out very soon on this guy victor newberg where in the author's bio it says victor newberg is famous most famous for two things discovering dylan thomas and being the man that alistair crowley turned into a camel that's on his author's bio so i decided okay i'm going to message this person uh, who's who's editing this book and seeing whether or not they um, they can tell me more about it. So just yesterday, I called them up after messaging them on Twitter and they said, yes, we can chat. And as I was chatting to them, they said, and there's a guy called Justin Hopper. He said, by the way, very weird thing, but I was just mentioning to my partner before I came on to talk to you that I was going to talk to this guy called Dan Schreiber. And she went, Dan Schreiber, I know that name. How do I know that name? Oh my God, I hired him to work on a book that I co-wrote with Jimmy Carr called The Naked Jape to collect all the jokes for it. It's I haven't seen her in 
13 years, I think. There's no connection. This guy lives in Essex. He's from Pittsburgh. There's nothing that connects us. He's writing a book about a long-lost esoteric occultist who was right-hand man to Aleister Crowley. And here he is, married with a child to Lucy Greaves, who wrote this book. So I try to find Lucy Greaves online to say, hey, how are you on Twitter? And I put in Lucy Greaves, the naked jape. And the first thing that comes up on top tweets is a tweet from you saying, what a wonderful book this is by Jimmy Carr and Lucy Greaves. And and here I am talking to you the next day. And I know there's no meaning in that. I know that, but isn't it fucking great? That is weird. Feel. And I didn't know my tweet was on there. So I do remember, I loved, I was about to say, what a great book. It's a really, really, and I didn't know you'd worked on that book either. Yeah, and I worked on it. And here's the thing, when I quit QI, and I, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I was living in Oxford. Lucy Greaves gave me a job to work on this book for, it was only like 600 pounds, but that gave me the money to pay my first month's rent in London that allowed me to move and change my life entirely. And when we we're talking about these namaste motherfucking moments, that was one of them. Lucy Greaves gave me that moment by handing me a second career, like the idea that I could have more yeah. of a comedy career. Um, and my rent to move to London. That was my that was my big thing. And there she is, and your name connected to her. So it all sounds weird, but you follow that stuff and it feels fun. It makes life feel like it's connected. Oh, it definitely keeps it interesting and it keeps, as I say, your world getting bigger. And my little bit of life advice for this episode would be never more than never be more than two degrees separated from Lucy Greaves, and you'll be absolutely <laughs> fine. <laughs> Not one, but two knock-knock jokes. Come on, guys, what do you want? Blood? Thanks so much to Dan for joining me. Now, every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guests that I am going to try. And this week, it is something called the random input technique, which is often associated with Edward de Bono, the father of lateral thinking. Now, this technique quite simply involves picking a random word, usually a noun, but you could also do it from an image or something else, and following its associations freely until you find new ideas. The technique recommends that you just open a book at a random page and pick a random word on the page. De Bono explains, by definition, a random word is unconnected to any subject and so provides a new entry point. So it's meant to be brilliant, this technique, for helping you get around creative blocks and all that kind of thing. So I've decided I am going to try it and see if it helps me with my joke writing. So I'm going to pick my word. I've got in front of me the complete works of Shakespeare, mainly because I'm a pretentious knob. And my word is going to be... Oh, Richard III. My word is tomorrow. Hmm. I don't know if I like that word. Um, another word on the page is ghosts, but I'm going to start with tomorrow and then I might cheat and use my plan B word, ghosts. So that's it for this week. Thanks so much to Dan for joining me. You can find links to his social media and other good stuff in the show notes. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, with music by Jake Yap and produced by Mike Hansen for Pod People Productions. If you've liked today's show, please subscribe now on your favourite podcast app and also rate and review the show. Not because I'm needy and crave external affirmation, although those things are true, but because it does help other people find the show. We'll be back in your feed next Monday when I'll be talking to 
into comedian, writer and political commentator with his brand new book out just last week, Jeff Norcott. It's like all these middle class things. There are a lot of valid reasons why they take off. Brioche, sounds wanky, <laughs> tastes lovely. Liaise, sounds wanky, very useful word. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.